Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. We're in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 16 through 22, as we look at the emptiness of false prophets, or promises, excuse me. Once you imagine, if you will, just take a moment as you're turning there, to think of a man who's lost in the desert, doesn't know his way around, finds the sun beating down upon him, but he has no bag of water, there's no store. He's looking for water. He desperately needs water. The body needs a lot of water. He cannot survive. Finally, finding a gully into the sands, he thinks he finds water only to find a spring that has no water in it. It's dry. Or a man who has been spending months panning for gold, looking for, for color, looking for that color of gold, only to find some, but then to discover later after his joy is immense to find that it's nothing but fool's gold. Or imagine, if you will, a farmer who's desperate for rain. His crops look like they're ready to dry out. It's been a dry fall and spring for him. Looking at the clouds, waiting for it to get dark, and he sees it. He's praying, thinking, here it is. My prayers are answered, only to find a storm and wind wits up and drives the rain away, leaving just a mist. What, all do, what do all three of these scenarios have in common? Hope. A hope in a promise. A hope that a spring brings water. Hope that color means gold. Hope that the, the dark clouds are going to bring rain. But each of those promises proved to be false and empty. That's what we're about to see here in our passage today as we look at the emptiness of the false promises of the false teachers. Last week, Peter describes the character of these false teachers, you might remember. He does this as a warning so that the church would not be deceived. It's, it is our purpose, it is our job to, to evaluate those who come before us and begin to teach. It's important that the church protect and guard the gospel, the, or the gospel and the flock from their corrupting influences. He vividly describes their behavior and character as shameless and ones who are accursed. He doesn't mince words, but he paints a word picture that points to their arrogance and sensuality and their greed. Peter points out that these false teachers will be judged for their sins of not loving God and loving others as themselves. As we move on in today's passage, Peter continues to criticize the character and behavior of these false teachers and he's sparing no words, he likens them to waterless springs and mists driven by the storm. He, say, he writes that men who promise freedom but themselves are slaves. He writes that their end is sure for they shall stand before the Almighty in a judgment that they refuse to acknowledge. 
So with that, take your Bibles if you would. It's here on the monitors if you need. Again, if you need a Bible, please let us know. We'd like to get one in your hands. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 16 through 22, he writes off, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. They will face judgment. You can deny God's judgment. You can deny the return of God. But this is sure judgment is being reserved for these men. In verse 18, he says, For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the, what the true proverb says has been happening to them in verse 22. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Father, open up our minds and hearts for this passage of scripture as we look 2,000 years into the past to see that it's still relevant to us this morning. Father, may we take this warning to heart. May our minds be focused on your word. Uh, limit the distractions. And Father, may we respond to your Holy Spirit's work as we examine the grace that you have given for us to live as you called us to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our passage today, Peter turns his attention to now those who are affected by the teachings. Last week, it was the teachers themselves. Now he's going to turn around and put a microscope or a magnifying glass, probably a, a maybe a better term, to the congregation as a whole and look at the effect that the false teachers, their teachings, their behavior, their character had on those they were influencing not satisfied with dismissing, demeaning, and doubting the teachings of Jesus in pursuing godliness and holiness, these false teachers now actively seek to make converts, disciples to their own way of thinking, to the destructive and dangerous teachings and lifestyles they advocated for. First, now here's where we're going to take our scriptures, and this is where you need it. Look at verse 17 as we go a little bit further in. Peter proclaims that these teachers are guilty of offering false promises. They were attempting to seduce the children of God to abandon the teachings of the apostles and to follow them in satisfying their insatiable appetites for the pleasures of the flesh. However, Peter points out that their promises are false and empty. He points out that any who follow these teachers will find themselves in a position worse off than they, that they professed uh, be, than before when they professed Christ. In referring them to waterless springs, Peter brings to mind of the reader the need for water, our need for water, especially in the Middle East and other parts of the world with intense heat. We must remind it that to his original readers that water was not always plentiful or easy, or, uh, or easy uh, to obtain or carry. 
They did not have stores or Starbucks or Jamba Juice or 7-Elevens where they could just drop by and get a giant Slurpee or, or a bottle of Evian fresh spring water. Most obtained their water through wells dug deep into the soil, but these would not have been very plentiful, especially when traveling. Most would not drink from a river when people would wash their clothes and also do their toilet. But they would go to a spring or to a brook where the water would be cool and refreshing. But there's nothing, nothing worse than fighting thirst, looking for water, noticing the spring up ahead, only to find it dry. In other words, these waterless springs offered satisfaction. They a promise of water for the dry, dusty throat. But they actually left one parched and worse off. The second example that Peter uses is that he refers to them as mists driven by a storm. This word picture paints the hope of those that farm. As we know today, the farmer, even more so in those days, relied on rain to water their crops. They did not have sprinkler systems and irrigation systems as we have now. They were astute in reading the skies to gauge whether or not rain was on its way or near. At first, you could imagine they might be excited as the skies darkened with clouds that looked ready to pour, uh, pour down with precious rain that would water their needy crops. The wind would begin to blow, pushing the clouds closer, only instead of producing life-giving water. The wind would become stronger, causing the water to appear as mist that only obscure the vision, but does not leave enough moisture to fully water the crops. You see, the clouds and the storm promise rain, but it doesn't deliver. It's an empty promise. Like the waterless spring in the storm, the promises of the false teachers are empty. Peter is charging these teachers with deception. They promise satisfaction and clarity through their teaching and their behavior, but they left their disciples parched and confused. Today we'll consider three ways they sought to make disciples with empty promises. The first one, as we look at these three false promises, the first is that they promised them that they could be trusted. Trust us. We know what we're talking about. You've, you've met people like that. That they could just sell you anything. They could sell ice to, you know, to an Eskimo. They, you know, they could do all these types of things for you. Well, Peter writes that these teachers spoke with a confidence that led others to trust them. He notes that their method of operation was to entice others by speaking loud boasts of folly. They could do it with their charisma, with their words. In scripture, folly is described as living as, as if there was no God and no future judgment. Those who live in folly are called fools. Whereas God has called his children to live in wisdom. Wisdom is not necessarily speaking about head knowledge or the intellect that can easily puff up and make one prideful, but is simply the skill of godly living. Mark that down. Mark that. What is wisdom? It's the skill of living godly. Turn, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 7. Scripture teaches us that one who masters these skills is called wise. 
Jesus mentions how one becomes wise, how one can master the skill of living godly. In Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 24. Many of you, if you've grown up in a children's church or uh, maybe VBS or something of like that, will know this as a song. Everyone, Jesus says, who hears the words of mine. So that's number one, those who hear the words of mine and then what? Does them. So there's two ways or two parts of being wise. One who hears the words of God and one who follows them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and he beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. You and I know this, especially living in earthquake country. We understand that your house needs to be firm on rock. It needs to be, it means you tied down or bolted down. He says, the wise is one who hears my word and then obeys them. That's the skill of godly living. But look at verse 26. And everyone who hears the words of mine. So here's a common factor. They both hear the word of God. But look what the foolish man does. He does not do them. And the one who hears my words and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the whole winds blew and beat against, against the house. And you understand what happens here. And, fell, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Peter is saying these false teachers use false promises by speaking supernaturally confidently. But they're foolish. Their words are foolish. They're causing you to, to disobey what God's word has to say. Both the psalmist and the writers of Proverbs. <laughs> you never know what's going to come out of my, my mouth. Note that a, right, that, that a right understanding of God is essential for wisdom. So to hear the words of God, what's the difference? Why does one hear the words of God and do, do them and not, another hears the words of God and doesn't? Well, it comes right here to what we're going to see here on the monitor. Both in Psalms and Proverbs. Psalms 110 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Whereas Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. When it comes down to it, they don't have a right understanding who God is. You see, using their unnatural confidence, these foolish false teachers seduce the unsteady to disregard the word of God as scripture, to cast dispersions on the teachings of Jesus, and to discredit the teaching of the apostles. Like Satan before him, they sought to cast doubt on God's word, his character, and his goodness. They have no fear of God. Hence they would say there is no judgment, future judgment. God is not returning. Jesus is not returning. There is no future punishment. Live as you want to live. They're foolish. They're actually encouraging people to disregard the teachings of God's word. Secondly, they promised that they could pursue the passions of the flesh. As we continue in verse 18, we read that they appealed to human sinful desires, teaching it was okay to live outside of God's command. Look at verse 18. Peter writes that they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh. 
Once again, Peter uses the word entice, which means to bait, as in fishing. Now, I'm not a fisherman, but I do know that fishermen use different types of bait to catch different types of fish. And to be successful as a fisherman is important to know your prey, to know your fish, to know what they like and what they will bite at, so to speak. Well, these false teachers knew exactly how to seduce the unstable and the weak in the congregation, in the church. Like a wise hunter and fisherman who understand their prey, they knew the human desire to pursue their own pleasure. And you and I know this. You and I fight daily with our desire to pursue fleshly desires, to be the boss, to make our own decisions, to satisfy our hunger and thirst. In this case, they were teaching that it was perfectly legitimate for a Christian to satisfy their urges and desires. Do what you want. Doesn't matter what scripture says. Doesn't matter what, what, what God says. It doesn't matter to the teachings of Christ. Just pursue it. God wants you to be happy. How often have we started to rationalize and justify our own sin by that phrase? God just wants me to be happy. They maintained that it, that it was the agenda of the apostles to, was to control the Christians by limiting their freedom. Plus, since Jesus was not going to return and there was no final judgment, what was wrong with having a little fun in this life? This life is difficult. It is hard. We suffer. So what's wrong with enjoying a little bit of sin here and there? Morality is a quaint idea, but it's not practical. Sounds similar to our culture, doesn't it? Yeah, monogamy sounds good. It sounds like something you should do, but yeah, but is that really practical? Should we really only have one partner in life? That just doesn't seem right. Well, what's wrong with me just enjoying a little bit of this and that? Yeah, so I get out of control, but it's just for a little bit. I still work hard and provide for my family, right? You and I know that those promises are false and leave the soul empty and the heart in a worse position. With boastful speech, they invite their hearers to indulge in the flesh, probably misusing the very words of the Apostle Paul who would proclaim, all things are lawful for me. See, that's what they do. They, they take a, a portion of truth and they put it down as a slogan, but yet as they fill it out, they misapply it, misdirect it, dismiss the power behind it. And use it this frame that all things are lawful. You can almost hear them shouting. See, even Paul agrees with us. All things are lawful. We are under grace. We are no longer under the law. You and I can do what we want. Yet like all false teachers, they ignore the rest of Paul's teaching and declaration that's there on the monitor. Look, he says, yes, all things are lawful for me, but all, all things are what? helpful. All things are lawful for me, but what? I will not be dominated by nothing, Paul says. Later on in chapter 10 of that same letter, he would again say, all things are lawful, but again, all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. See, when we're here as a congregation, we are to build each other up. 
not seduce and tear each other down to join us in our sin. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And we just looked at this last week, that these false teachers had this opposite. It's like they stopped with all things are lawful. It's like a teenager who says, Dad, can I drive the car? And he says, yes, you may, but also. And all they hear is, drive the car and forget everything else. We've already established last week that these false teachers failed to love their neighbor. And we shared with you last week that when you and I sin, it is always unloving. Not only to ourselves, but also to others. Our sin always involves someone else. I love this thing, this victimless crime scenario. There are no victimless crimes. It always involves someone else. Someone else is always affected by our choices, sinful or not. They were more, more interested in conquering and consuming others than building and encouraging them up. We see this clearly as Peter describes their targets as look at here in verse 18, as those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. The object of their nefarious plots were recent converts. They were looking for those who were easy prey, those who had just accepted Christ, who weren't as strong as their faith and could be easily confused and manipulated. This should not surprise us as both animal and human hunters seek for the easiest prey to capture. They look for the wounded. They look for the outcast. Again, just as Satan, who is described by Peter in his first letter as an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, we need to see that these men are so as well. These unscrupulous teachers have no qualms about using people for their own devious, selfish purposes. This is especially hideous to our holy God. As Peter notes earlier in his letter, that God has redeemed us from this sinful desire. Turn back again, 2 Peter, same book that you're in. Probably one page or maybe on the same page. Look at chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Look at verses 3 through 4. It says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted us his precious and very great promises. These promises are much different than the false teachers. You can set your hope, anchor your hope in these promises of God. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Look at this. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. These false teachers are saying, no, you, you, you need to go back. We've been saved. We've, we've escaped. And he says, yes, but now I want you to go back into us. This is what these false teachers are doing. It's hideous. It's an affront to an holy God who has brought us and made us his children. Now, these false teachers are boldly and foolishly promising new converts that they can go back to their corrupting lifestyles of unbelievers. Those who live in error. That's who lives in error is the unbelievers. He says, most likely, these words would have been actually readily accepted by those still struggling to put their sin and pass behind them. Would you not agree? If I were to stand up here and say whatever your pet sin is, 
put it in your mind. I'm going to say that it's okay. God just wants you to be happy. Enjoy life. God's grace is so big, right? Should we sin more so grace abounds more? What does Paul say in our scripture reading? God forbid, but we, I tell you what, you can find a church that'll give you the okay to do what you want. You just need to look around a little bit harder. These false teachers, as they were doing, I know it's difficult, just, you know, just have it. Just do that. It's like the spouse who one is having, having a, a dieting or doing some exercise and they're trying to do their best to maintain a healthy lifestyle and then they got that one spouse that's always saying, boy, I wish I could have some ice cream right now. Or hey, you want to look at this cake. Look how good it is. Don't you hate that type of spouse? What type of spouse is loving that way? And I'm not naming names or doing anything like that. I'm just saying that sometimes that happens in our lives. This is much worse. These men were saying, yes, enjoy it. Grab it. Quit fighting sin. Just lay back and enjoy it. You and I today know how strong the pull of our old life can be. Some even 5, 10, 15, 30, 40 years after we still feel the pull. Instead of encouraging these new converts to continue to grow in their faith, they are promising that they could abandon the pursuit of godliness and holiness. Just satisfy yourselves once again with those familiar pleasures. I don't have time to get into it. I wish I did, but I would just encourage you. Would you read the book of Joshua this week? It's a short book, uh, 18 chapters, 16 chapters, something like that. And if you're reading in the King James, you look for the word called tribute. I don't know what it might be used in the NIV or the ESV, but look for the word tribute. And you'll see Israel has already tried this path and found themselves desperately away from God. Do not be fooled, my friends, by these false empty promises. Even today there are false teachers who promote this dangerous teaching. Recall the warning of Paul that's found here on the monitor in first, or it's not, excuse me, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These false teachers seek to send you straight back into the flames of hell. And they don't care as long as they're able to satisfy themselves with you. That's still happening today. It's still happening today. For those who just want to consume you and conquer you and divide you, seeking to just enjoy themselves, call you to join them. So number three, in the third promise, they promised that they would find freedom. Join us. Live like us. And you have free, true freedom. You will understand what true freedom is when you just allow yourselves to be who you are. Sounds familiar? Doesn't matter how God created you. Doesn't matter what, what God's word says. Just be the real you.
They taught that they provided the pathway to freedom. To them, the gospel was just bondage. The word of God just limited you. It's like chains that you have to carry around trying to obey the commands of God. Look at verse 19. Peter writes that they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. The false teachers desired the removal of moral restraints, asking, wouldn't life be easier if we did not have to carry these moralities around, if I did not have to love my neighbor, if I could covet, if I could kill, if I could do all that I want, I would then be truly free. To their mind, the teachings of Christ and the apostles were burdens. They were weights. They were weighing them down and preventing them from enjoying life. What type of God is that? Did he not give me these desires? Does he not want me to enjoy what he's put before us? These foolish teachers believe that freedom is found in doing whatever you want. However, Paul or Peter, excuse me, likens them to slaves, noting in that passage in verse 19 that whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They were slaves to their own passions and desires, thinking themselves free, their sins actually ruled over them. How often, though, do you and I think that we're in control of our sins? This is where the story of Joshua and the story of tribute comes in. We think that we're in control over it, only to recognize way too late that sin was actually in control of us. My friends, do not be deceived as these, as these foolish men and women are and are today. For the true believer, Christ has set us free from these passions. Look at 1 John on the monitor, chapter 5. The beloved disciple writes, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not what? Burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God has overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, freedom comes from knowing and loving God. His commands to love him, to love others are not burdensome. But they're freedom in itself. To be who God has actually created us to be. You see, we, we, we believe the lie. We have been deceived and accepted how the world has defined us and how we are to live our lives and how we are to think of ourselves. In the opening of this letter, Paul gladly identified himself as a slave of Christ. I don't know about you, but I want to be dominated by the Creator, the Almighty not by my own passions and desires. He understands himself to be in debt of Christ, who redeemed himself from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. Or Christ has redeemed us, excuse me, as from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. He understands the, the principle of a life debt. A life debt is a literary uh, device in which someone whose life is saved or spared by another becomes indebted or in some way connected to the one who saved them. A life debt can only be paid off by saving the original person's life in return. In the English novel Robinson Crusoe, Crusoe saves the life of the native Friday who swears to become his slave and servant. 
And for those of you who love the Star Wars expanded universe, Chewbacca swore a life debt to Han Solo for saving him from slavery under the Galactic Empire. In the English novel, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Alcazaban, Peter uh, Pettigrew becomes indebted to Harry Potter for the boy spares Pettigrew's life. And in the movie Shrek 2, the character Puss in Boots owes Shrek a life debt for sparing the cat's life. So we see this even in literary fiction and movies. And like these fictional characters who owed a life debt, you and I have been freed from sin. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ and we have been called to follow him with all abandon. However, instead of finding freedom, Peter writes that these false teachers and those who are now following them and being influenced by them are now slaves, dogs, and pigs. So we learn that these false teachers are actively seeking to seduce new converts by promising them that they could trust their false teaching, find satisfaction in pursuing their own lifestyles, old lifestyles, and to find freedom in living without moral restraint. Peter now moves to describe now the effect these empty promises had on those who followed them into their folly. And many of us could understand the effect that empty promises over the years have on us. It could be a father or a mother who gave us nothing but empty promises and now we carry the scars of them. It could be the, the student debt that you might carry. It might be, if I only had this job, I got it. If I could only have a house, you got it. If I only had a, a beautiful wife, I got it. But then find yourself that those promises still leave you empty inside. You can understand the effect that empty promises has on one. I want to share with you several of them. First, he likens them to slaves who were once free, but now have willingly gone back to their evil masters. And now they're in worse shape than when they begun. Look at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, speaking of new converts, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first for someone who has come to the knowledge of God, has accepted this and profess a faith, to then to turn around and go back to it, he says they are now worse off. Now, what Peter is doing is not making up new doctrine here. He's actually using the teachings of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and look at Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Peter uses the parable of Jesus Peter uses the parable of Jesus and the unclean spirit in that passage to make this point. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, speaking of when he is, there's an exorcism, it passes through the waterless places, seeking rest, but it finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house, to the person from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, sweat and, uh, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. Hey, look what I found. This life now is, is less cluttered. Let, let's go in. There's enough room for all of us. And they enter and dwell in it. And the last state of that person is worse 
than the first. So Peter is learning here, remembers this parable, this teaching from Christ. And he's applying it to those who once professed Christ, began living a Christian life, but then find themselves drawn back and follow after the passion. He says, these people are worse off. Peter is charging them with willfully and knowingly disobeying the word of God. The holy commandment, when he says that they go against the holy commandments, that is the faith that's been once delivered to the saints. And that holy commandment, that faith, involves a belief in the identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It involves a confession of the condition of their life in sin. It involves a repentance and turning away from sin and turning and trusting that God has accepted Christ's work on our behalf. And it involves a transformed life that is marked by the fruits of the Spirit. So these people have escaped from that. To abandon the holy commandment is to abandon Christ. And Jesus warned in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Peter notes that those who abandon their profession of faith are like dogs and pigs in verse 22. He says this is a true proverb. He says the dog returns to his vomit and the sow, the pig, after washing herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. He is trying to drive us to consider how awful, how disgusting that is. And imagine to those in the Mideast, slaves and dogs and pigs would be unclean. You would not want to be one of those types. They were words that were disparagingly used at someone. And he says, one who leaves God is as a dog who returns to sniff and eat his own vomit. It's the pig who goes and is washed, but yet looks at the wallow, the mud, and says, I'm comfortable there, and goes back, forgetting how well good it felt to be cleaned. Peter is warning that those that fall for empty promises of the false teachers have actually apostatized. In other words, they went back to what they truly were. Their nature, a dog, I don't, you know, my dog does that, I don't blame him. When the pig goes back to the dirt, uh, to the mud, I don't blame him. I expect them to do that. Why? Because it's in their nature. And that's what Peter is saying. You're going back to your nature. You truly have apostatized. To confess Christ then deny him is to prove that you truly were never a convert at all. The Apostle John warns this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain to all that they were not of us. Not only that, but Peter also warns that to apostatize, to once profess Christ and then to deny him and leave makes it more difficult to return to God. In other words, the light of the gospel may never once again darken or lighten their heart. One who abandons the faith is very unlikely to return. Dr. Schreiner notes that only those who continue to live a life of godliness will receive the reward of eternal life. And those who had early, or not so long ago, had professed Christ were now being turned by these false teachers. 
You and I must understand that God's commands are good for the soul and we are to live by them. That is the wisdom, the wise thing to do. However, these false teachers weren't looking for loopholes. They weren't looking for loopholes, but dismissing the law of God completely. Again, the apostle John writes of the need to obey. He says, we are from God speaking as disciples and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of evil or the spirit of error. John is saying those who dismiss the apostles' teaching, the faith that has been delivered are from a spirit of error. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to implore you this morning to be on alert for those with great confidence try to lure you to dismiss and disregard the commands of Christ. They prey on those that are helpless and hopeless, seeking to devour them. Professing to be wise, they lack true knowledge. They offer up false promises, false assurances, and false hopes, leaving their converts in worse shape than when they began. The prophet Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, because of his heart, was so broken because of Israel's sin, wrote in Jeremiah chapter 2 here on the monitor. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. And look at how, how close this mirrors what Paul, Peter is writing. He says, be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. What were they? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They are like water springs. They have forsaken the one who promised to give them life and sought their own promises. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? See, Israel failed in this endeavor. That's why Paul would write that Israel are, are, is written as an example for us that we may learn not to be dogs that return to the vomit or the pig that goes back to the mud. As we come to a close, I want to point out here that to any of you who may be tempted to return to the corruption of sinful desires, if there are any here that might be confused about the call of Christ, if there's any of you that are struggling, that are finding it very difficult to pursue holiness, I need to share this with you that the promises of God are different than those of the false teachers. God's promises are not empty, but truly satisfy. You can trust the words of Scripture. Jesus promised to satisfy those who hunger and thirst. Jesus has promised to comfort those that are overwhelmed. Jesus has promised to heal those that were afflicted and his promises never fail. Let me leave you with several things to consider. John Piper writes that if you're not at odds with sin, you are not at peace with Jesus. Pursue holiness and godliness. Do, no God, do not go back to that which you've escaped. Pastor Mark Dever remarks that holiness is actually freedom. Freedom from the bitter taskmaster that is sin. Rather a slave of Jesus than a servant of my own making. 
Lastly, I would like for you to look at Romans chapter 6, verse 15. We have read the previous 14 verses in our scripture reading. I believe it's the ears on the monitor. The apostle Paul wants to consider the wonderful gift of God's grace. He says, what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sins, but now that you have become obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin and having become slaves of righteousness in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Get this if you would please as we close. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and a lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Would you join me today in making commitment to pursue godliness and holiness for God has called us to be his children, to be wise, to master the skill of godly living. Let us repudiate any teaching or any behavior that calls us to return to our vomit or to return to the mud hole. There we had bowed I closed. The worship team comes up. Would you consider what the Holy Spirit has for you this morning? I'm fearful of trying to apply it any more than I have so that I may not direct the Holy Spirit in the wrong place in your life. You may be here fighting sin. You might be here struggling with a temptation ready to dismiss God's word, trying to justify or reason yourself into sin. If you're a Christian, I pray that you do not. I would warn you to do so would to be abandoned Christ, maybe forever. And the judgment for that is death. But God's promises are real. Let me give you with hope. Trust in him. His promises are never empty. He is not a waterless spring or a mist that leaves you confused and clouded. Would you trust him today? Father, both encourage us with your word that your promises are true. Help us, Lord, to recommit this morning, if need be, to pursuing holiness and godliness with all that we have. May we gladly join to be slaves of Christ with Peter, and John, and Paul. Let's gladly count ourselves as submitting to him as Lord and Savior. And help us in our struggle to fight sin. And that beckoning call of Satan to return to the passions of the flesh. Give us the strength to recognize that we've been delivered from the power of sin. No longer has a dominion. And may you be glorified in this. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. 
We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.